This message was presented through a partnership between GYC and GYC Europe at the 2012 conference in Linz, Austria. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Father in heaven, we just want to thank you for the opportunity of studying your word. We just praise your name for the Bible, for the word of God. And we thank you so much for Jesus. And as we open its pages today, we pray that you'd inspire us, encourage our hearts, draw us close to you, and deepen our faith in the fact that you have a remnant movement on earth today, a church that you've raised up specially. In Christ's name, amen. Many years ago, Pastor H.M.S. Richards of the Voice of Prophecy was attending a really a large seminar for pastors. Now, these pastors were not Seventh-day Adventist pastors. And uh, as they were attending the seminar, after the seminar one evening, they were sitting around and eating. And one of the pastors looked at the other pastors at the table, and they began to discuss the book of Revelation. Well, these non-Adventist pastors didn't know a great deal about Revelation, and so they started discussing about these wild beasts and these weird images. And Pastor Richards thought that this was quite fascinating, so he just sat there listening for a while. Sometimes it's good to listen before you speak. And so he listened to them. And one of the pastors spoke up, these evangelical non-Adventist pastors, and he said, you know what I think I think it's too bad that the book of Revelation was ever put in the Bible. I think that was too bad. And everybody kind of paused and he said, the reason why is this. First, you can't understand it. But secondly, if the book of Revelation wasn't in the Bible, we wouldn't be troubled with that cult of the Seventh-day Adventists. You know, I thought about that when Pastor Richards told us that. And I said, you know what? That's half true. Well, it's certainly not true that it's too bad the book of Revelation is in the Bible. The book of Revelation is one of the most precious books in the Bible. It reveals Jesus and his end time plan. But if you didn't have the book of Revelation in the Bible, Seventh-day Adventists would lose their unique identity. God has raised up a unique end time movement, and we find that identity in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation has really four chapters that help you understand the uniqueness of God's last day movement. And our topic this afternoon is the remnant. We're going to look at the remnant throughout the Bible. We're going to look at the remnant in the book of Revelation. But there are really four chapters in the book of Revelation that describe God's end time movement. Revelation, and I'll back up into them. Revelation 14 describes the message of God's true church. We'll look at that. Revelation chapter 12 describes the identifying characteristics of God's true church, and that's where we'll spend a lot of time. Revelation chapter 10, I talked about the other night. It talks about the historic rise of God's true church, that God's true church would rise out of disappointment, just like the New Testament church. And then Revelation chapter 3 talks about the condition of the true church, that at the judgment hour, God's true church would be complacent, it would be apathetic, somewhat Laodicean. Now, there are many young people particularly that look at the Adventist church, they look at their local church, and they say, you know what, it's rather complacent, rather Laodicean. And, um, but when you really look at it from the Bible perspective, that is one of the characteristics of God's church in the last days. When you study the remnant in the New Testament and in the book of Revelation, there is no remnant that comes out of the remnant. Are you with me? 
There is no remnant of the remnant. That's not a biblical idea. When you look at the New Testament, God's remnant last day church would be spiritually apathetic, but there would be in the body of Christ, in the context of that church, those that were passionate about Christ, those that were passionate about his message. The wheat and the tares would grow together until the what? Harvest. The wheat and the tares would grow together until the harvest. So we're going to look at first the book of Revelation. We're going to start with Revelation chapter 12. And if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it, which I hope you do. And we're going to begin with Revelation chapter 12. We looked at this briefly the other evening, but I'm going to focus on the last few verses. We pointed out that Revelation chapter 12 is really a scenario of history from the fall of Lucifer in heaven down until the time of the end. And in Revelation, the 12th chapter, we have these four vignettes. We studied them the other night. And we studied first that Lucifer fell from heaven. Then the scene passed on. Lucifer attacked Jesus. Jesus was victorious. The scene passes on. And uh, Lucifer tries to destroy God's people in the Middle Ages. And in each of these first three incidents, Christ wins. Jesus wins. Satan loses. You and I are on the winning side. Jesus cast Satan out of heaven. He won. Christ triumphed over Satan and the powers of hell on the cross. He won. Jesus triumphed in the dark ages. He won. But right now we're looking at the remnant. If you have your Bible, please look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. And the dragon. Who's the dragon? The Satan or the devil. What are the two symbols of Satan in Revelation chapter 12? What are they? He's the dragon and what else is he? He's the serpent. Why is he called the serpent? Because he deceives. Why is he called the dragon? Because he destroys. So he deceives those whom he wants to destroy and destroys those whom he deceives. So there are two symbols in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, of Satan. He is the serpent and the dragon. The serpent, he is the deceiver. But he is a deceiver with the intent on destroying. So the dragon was enraged with the woman. Enraged means angry. So the devil's angry with the woman. Now, in the Bible, a woman represents what? The church. You find that throughout Scripture. The woman represents the bride of Christ. And it, or if you have an apostate woman, like in Revelation chapter 17, the woman represents the fallen church. But here, the true church. So the dragon, Satan's angry with the church. He goes to make war with the rest of her offspring. Now, the King James Version says the remnant of her seed. There are different translations for that word remnant. Remnant can be translated the rest. It can be translated those who remain. Who has a German Bible with him today? Just raise your hand, you've got a German Bible. What's the, give me the German word in German for the word rest. What is that? It says rest or remnant. What, what's the word here in the German language when it says in Revelation 12, verse 17, the dragon was angry with the one, went to make war with the, with the what of her offspring? Does it use remnant in German? What, what's the word for remnant in German? What is it? Übrigen. Uh, give me a literal translation of Übrigen. 
What's the literal translation? It's remnant or what else? Do you speak German? What is it? Rest or remnant? Uh, who has a, anybody have a French Bible? French Bible? Yeah, what does it say in French? Rest, rest or remnant. Rest, the idea of the ones that remain. What other, what other translations of the Bible do we have here? You have Spanish? Yeah. What is, it says rest in Spanish, the rest of those. What else do you have? Any other variant translations between rest, remain? Yes. You have Dutch? What does Dutch say? Ubrikin. What's Ubrikin in Dutch? What, what's that? Rest. Okay. So most translations are going to say the rest, those that remain, those that left over. So what is Revelation 12 saying so far? The dragon, and who's the dragon? Satan is what? Angry with the what? Woman and with the, the rest, those that remain. In other words, those that, have been pre, those that have preserved God's truth down through the centuries, that straight line of truth, those loyal, faithful men and women of God. Then he defines them. And you'll notice the definition at the last part of Revelation 12, 17. Notice it says, when to make war with the rest of her offspring. And how does it define them? Who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So down through the ages, God would have a faithful group of people. They would be called the rest, those that remain, or the remnant. They would be those that keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Let's look at Revelation 14 and notice how this issue of the keeping of the commandments of God is tied in to the final controversy between good and evil. So we're taking a look at how this idea of the keeping of the commandments of God, God would have a remnant people, those that would be faithful, those that would be loyal, those that would remain faithful to him at end time. Revelation chapter 14, starting with verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Who has another word for patience in your translation? German, French, Dutch. Here is the patience. Here is the what? Something beside patience. What is it? Endurance. You've got it. Here's the endurance of the saints, of the believers. They have endured down through the centuries. They've been loyal to the teachings of Scripture. They've been faithful to God. Here's the endurance of the believers. Here are those that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, it's very fascinating. If you look at Revelation 14.7 and 14.9 and compare it to Revelation 14.12, notice in Revelation 14.7, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship the one that made heaven, earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. What do we call the one that made heaven, earth, sea, and the fountains of waters? What do you call him? He is the what? Creator. So Revelation 14.7 is a call to worship the Creator. Now look at Revelation 14.9. It says, if any man worships the what? Beast. So there's a contrast in Revelation 14 between worshiping the Creator and worshiping the beast. Where does this contrast find its focal point? Verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So this whole controversy between good and evil will come to a focal point over worship. That worship 
will find its focus in the commandments of God. There'll be one group that worships the Creator. There'll be another group that worships the beast. The remnant will stand firm for Christ. The love that they have for Jesus will lead them to obedience. They are saved by grace, but that grace that transforms their lives leads them to live obedient, godly lives. Those obedient, godly lives are manifest as they keep God's commandments and are obedient to Him. So God will have a remnant, a remnant that stand out as lights in the world, a remnant, a group that remain faithful and loyal to His principles down through the ages. They are characterized by keeping His commandments and specifically characterized by their faithfulness and loyalty to the fourth commandment, which manifests in a time of evolution their commitment to the Creator. Now notice what Revelation 14, 7 says. It says, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, and, and for the obvious judgment has come and worship Him that made heaven and earth. Worship the Creator. Why do we worship God anyway? What is the very basis of all worship? Why worship God? What's the basis of all worship? Because, go back to Revelation 4, 4 verse 11. Go back to Revelation 4 and look at verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord. Is He worthy? Is He worthy? What do you say? Revelation 4 verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you what? Created all things, and by your will and ex they exist and were created. So here in the book of Revelation, there's a scenario that's drawn out, a controversy between good and evil. That controversy between good and evil will, be, will come to a focal point over the commandments of God. The fourth commandment will be the special test in that controversy between good and evil, because a faithful group of believers who love Christ with all their hearts and have been saved by grace will be led to obedience to Him. That obedience has manifested itself in obeying the fourth commandment, which is the very heart, the very reason for worship. It is no accident that at the time that Charles Darwin wrote the first draft of the origin of the species on evolution, that that first draft came out in the 1840s. But God is never caught by surprise. And so God raised up an eternal movement that would herald His message of creation at a time when evolution took the world by storm. And so God leads us back to that sign of creation, the Sabbath. So as we worship on Sabbath, we praise the Creator that made us, the one that shapes us. We recognize that we did not evolve, that we're not merely skin-covering bone, that we're not some genetic accident, that we're not merely some combination of chemical molecules, but that we were fashioned and shaped by a loving Creator. The Seventh-day Adventist message is especially designed by God to answer the questions of thinking young people in a postmodern generation. It's specifically designed. There are those so-called intellectuals that would want to make us think 
that Adventism, and particularly the uniqueness of the book of Revelation, is the product of a narrow-minded 19th century mentality. One of the things I want to show you this afternoon is that the great philosophical questions that are being asked by the postmodern generation are answered in the book of Revelation. Now let me look at some of those and unpack this for you. How the remnant proclaims a message, not that's musty and old, not a message that simply goes back and it is old legalism from the 19th century, but there's something relevant, something pertinent. There is present truth for this hour embedded in the book of Revelation. It's the present truth that the university students in Germany, the present truth that the university students in France and Switzerland, their hearts are longing for. Let's look at some of those present truth aspects of this remnant message that God has given for this generation. First, we talk about creation. The leading drug that is sold in Europe is antidepressants. That's the leading drug sold in Europe are antidepressants. Why? Why are antidepressants selling the multiplied millions and billions of euros off the chart? Because the question is, who am I? See, evolution doesn't answer the great philosophical questions of life. It doesn't tell me where I came from. It doesn't tell me why I'm here. It doesn't tell me where I'm going. It simply says that I evolved and I'm just a product of chance and it's the survival of the fittest. And so you grasp to get as much pleasure as you can out of life. And when you've got as much pleasure as you can out of life, life is no longer worth living. So in that kind of a society, suicide becomes a perfectly legitimate outlet for a life that has become boring because all I am is an advanced animal anyway. See, that's why under atheism, Russia under atheism had more suicides than any country in the world. Do you know that under atheism, the former Soviet Union, and many times I would debate Russian philosophers over Russian television and talk to these Russian philosophers. The average Russian woman under atheism had seven abortions by the time she was 45 years old. Seven abortions. During the days of communism, vodka in Russia, alcoholism in Russia was off the charts. Some of the highest alcohol rates in the world. Why? Because if you believe you've evolved, and if you believe that there is no loving creator that's giving you a purpose for life, when the problems of life overwhelm you and there is no way out, then you either drown your problems in alcohol or you want to legitimately commit suicide because the future looks so dark. There is just no hope and this is all you have, so you might as well just end it all. Seventh-day Adventist young people have a message today. A message for people that are drowning themselves in alcohol. A message for young people who have been told that they evolved and they're shooting drugs in their veins. We have been created by a loving creator. You have worth in your life and you have purpose in your life because the God that made you and fashioned you has not left you alone in the universe. And when we come to worship on Sabbath, we come to celebrate. We celebrate Christ as our creator. We celebrate the God that made us. We celebrate that life is no accident. We celebrate that life is purpose and the God that made us has fashioned us. And we celebrate that the God that created us once, the God that has given purpose in our life today, this God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Here is philosophical question number one. 
the 21st century young university students are asking. Philosophical question number one is this. Where do I find self-worth? Where do I find self-esteem? How can I find out who I am? Where is my identity? And Seventh-day Adventists have a relevant present truth end time message. This is the message of the remnant. It is a message that speaks to this generation. We can say, you're created by a loving God who cares for you. You're shaped by a loving God that fashions your life. This loving God is in control of the universe. You know, shortly after the fall of communism, in fact, I was preaching. Any Hungarians here? All right, good, good, good. Help me with my pronunciation. You've got to help me now. I'm, I'm way off on this one. I was preaching in Budapest, and I was invited at, I was preaching in Budapest the night communism fell. It was in uh, 1989, and um, I had preached many, many times in, the, uh, in an agricultural hall. We had people coming to our meetings, but when communism fell, I went, began going to the universities. One of the universities, Shekhazvara, help me now. Oh yeah, that's it. I knew it was that one. <laughs> I knew it was that one. Say that again. That's nice. Really loud. Say that one again. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I was invited to come to that university. That city, that city was a center really for atheism and communism at that university. So I was invited to come there to that university to speak to the students on the subject of astronomy. The president of the university invited me to come and he said to me, we want you to come and speak on astronomy. Now I have some lectures on astronomy but I'm no astronomer. And he said, I want you to come and speak on astronomy. You speak first and then our university astronomer will speak. You speak on the fact that there is a God from design in nature. Our university astronomer will speak on the fact that there is no God. And then we'll let the students ask questions. Well, I knew I was being set up. I mean, I may look like a simple evangelist, but I'm not that simple. I knew that if I spoke first on astronomy, then an atheistic astronomer speaks, he's going to comment on everything I said and try to tear it apart. And then the, question, the students are going to ask questions. So I said, I'm willing to come, no problem. But since I'm a guest in Hungary, and since Hungarians are so gracious and so kind, you let your astronomer speak first and then let me speak. Because I knew that if he spoke first, I could raise a lot of questions. I may not have all the answers, but I could raise a lot of questions about what he said. And then I'd let the students ask questions. When I got to the university, walked into the auditorium, the place was packed with students. I mean, they were just sitting all over the place, sitting on the floor. And the president of the university, you know, God works in strange ways. The president of the university approached me, and he talked to my translator, Laszlo Hanyash. And he said to Elder Hanyash, he said, we have a problem. And so Pastor Hanyash translated for me, we have a problem. I said, yeah, that's all right, what's the problem? He said, the astronomer from the university could not be here. He was called out of town suddenly. I said, that's not a problem. Just give me two hours to speak to these students. That's no problem at all. We can solve that quick. So I spoke to the students about astronomy. Then came the question and answer period. This is really interesting. The faculty was sitting on this part, and the students were sitting here. 
So the first student raised his hand, and I knew he was prompted by the faculty, an atheistic faculty. And the first student raises his hand and said, when the Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin went up to the heavens, he didn't see God. And I just have one question for you, and you answer me directly. Have you ever seen God? Now, I knew immediately where that student's mind was going. He was thinking, if you haven't seen God because you can only believe what you see, you can only believe that which is material, then God must not exist. That's where his mind was going. Sometimes the Lord gives you answers that you haven't thought about before. One of the most exciting things about getting involved in witness is that you're going to be out giving a Bible study and you're going to see God lead you down a certain track and you will come back after that Bible study and you will say, I don't know why I said what I said, but I know God led me. Have any of you had that experience? Sure you have. When you get out on a limb for Christ, when you really go out for Jesus, you'll find that God will guide your voice. You'll find that God will guide you. This was one of those experiences in my life, and I've had it happen many times, that the Lord put an answer in my mouth that I had never thought about before. I said, you know what? Let's not talk about God. Let's not talk about the Bible. Let's not talk about faith. Let's just talk about philosophy. Rather than answering your question directly, I want to just talk about philosophy with you for a little while. And I said, I, I, I want to leave the students out because I want to go to your esteemed faculty. Because I knew if I get the faculty on my side, I'd get the students. So I said to the faculty, I want to ask you a question, a philosophical question. Of all the knowledge in the world, how much knowledge do your students have? Let's say this is 100% of knowledge. How much knowledge of history do they have? How much knowledge of philosophy do they have? How much knowledge of language? Let's say there are 2,000 languages in the world. Do your students speak 1,500 of those languages? Let's talk about the Chinese dynasty, the Ming dynasty. I want to know from any one of your students who the emperor was in the 14th Ming dynasty. I'd like to know who he married. I'd like to know all the children of those. How much knowledge do your students have of the Chinese history and culture? How much knowledge do they have of, of, of biology or history or chemistry or, or, or psychiatry? How much knowledge do they have of math? Let's take all the knowledge in the world and say all the knowledge that there is, scientific knowledge, philo uh, psych psychiatry, medicine, philosophy, English, of, of language, culture, of all this vast array of knowledge. Would you say your students know 50% of all there is to know? Have they read 50% of the books every day? There's another, what is it, 5,000 books, 10,000 books coming off the press every day? Have they read 2,500 books today? Of all the knowledge in the world, would you say your students have 50% of that knowledge? The faculty shook their head no. Would you say they have 25% of all the knowledge there is? No. Would you say they have 15% of all the knowledge there is? No. Would you say they might have, let's say they have five, just for purpose of discussion and assumption, let's say they have 5% of all the knowledge there is. So that means that your students know 5% of all there is to know, they don't know 95% of all there is to know. Is that a fair assumption? The faculty said yes. So I said it's a fair assumption that your students know 5%, they don't know 95%. Is that a fair assumption? They said yes. Now my question is this. 
If by your own admission, your students know 5% of all there is to know, and they don't know 95% of all there is to know, could God exist in the 95% of knowledge they don't have? If by your own admission, they only know 5%, if by your own admission, they don't know 95%, could God exist in that 95% of knowledge? The atheistic faculty of that university said, we have to say yes. He could exist in the knowledge we don't have. I said, look, then you're not atheists. Because an atheist, by definition, is one who says, I know God doesn't exist, and I'm absolutely sure. The best you are is an agnostic. Because an agnostic says, God may not exist. God may exist or he may not, but I really don't care. Now, I have my second question for you. I'm not going to ask you to believe. I'm going to describe two scenarios. And I'm just going to ask you, which scenario would you pick if one were true? I'm not asking you to believe, but I'm just saying if there were two scenarios, and there are only two in the universe, and one of them were true, which one would you wish were true? Which one in your deepest heart and your wildest dreams would you wish were true? Scenario number one, you evolved, you exist by chance, there's no purpose for your life, you wander through life, face its trials, its difficulties, and its challenges, you die, you end up dead, you go to the grave, there's nothing after life and worms eat your body. That's, I'm not asking you to believe that or not to believe that. I'm just saying that's one possible scenario. Do you hope that's true? Here's another possible scenario. What if, and I'm not saying it is true or it isn't true, I'm just saying what if there were a loving God that made you? What if, in spite of the sorrow, tears, and difficulties of life, that loving creator was still with you, guiding you to give you hope and courage? What if after this life there was a new world and an eternity of joy that you couldn't imagine or happiness that you couldn't imagine? If you only have two scenarios, I'm not asking you to believe, but tell me deep down inside, tell me in your heart of hearts, which one would you choose? They were silent, absolutely stunned, until one student piped up and said, you'd be foolish if you didn't choose the second alternative. You'd be foolish. And I said, look, now you're not agnostics either. Because an agnostic says, I don't care. But what you've said is, I really hope in my heart of hearts there is a creator that fashioned me and shaped me. I really hope that there's purpose in my life. I hope there's meaning in my life. You see, that's the message of the remnant. The message of the remnant, again, is not a message of 19th century theology that has no relevance to today. It's a message that speaks to the deepest needs of the heart, the longing of the heart for purpose, the longing of the heart for self-worth. The whole concept of Sabbath is a concept of this creator who gives us such value and worth in our lives. Now let's go to Revelation, the 14th chapter. Take your Bible, please. I want to go over Revelation 14 and share with you how Revelation 14 meets your generation, how Revelation chapter 14 speaks to a contemporary society, how Revelation 14 is God's end-time message for us today how it appeals to the deepest longings of the heart, how it deals with the issues that we are facing in this generation. Revelation, the 14th chapter, we're looking at verse 6. 
and I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. Now notice the angel flies. He does not float. The angel has an urgent end time message for today, a message of, of urgency. Young people want something that's important, something that's significant, something that they can give their lives to. I don't want to spend my life and look back over it and say, I spent my life for nothing. I spent my life for something that's insignificant. I spent my life for something that's meaningless. I spent my life simply getting up in the morning and eating my breakfast and working all day and coming home to supper and eating my supper and watching television at night. And I just did that for the last 50 years. Hoop-de-doo. What a life that is. I want to spend my life for something that counts. Don't you? Don't you? And so here, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. Here is an urgent, eternal, heavenly, end-time message, having the everlasting gospel to preach to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. The everlasting gospel. What is the gospel? It's the good news that whatever you have done before, however you've failed in life, whatever sins you've committed, the gospel is the good news that there's forgiveness, grace, and mercy. There are millions of people popping pills every morning. Why? Because they are so depressed over the guilt of their sin. So depressed. One night, I was preaching in Sweden. Talk about the gospel speaking to contemporary society. And after the meeting, a young professional woman came up to me in Sweden. She said, Pastor, can we talk? I said, sure. She said, I have a question for you. Yes, what's your question? Pastor, here's my question. Is abortion murder? Is abortion murder? I said, let me ask you a question. Why do you ask me that? Why do you ask me that? Are you asking me because you have a close friend that's thinking about an abortion and you want to counsel her? No, Pastor. Are you asking me that because you're pregnant? and you're thinking about an abortion. No, Pastor. Are you asking me that because you had an abortion and you feel so guilty you can't deal with it? She put her head down and began to cry. She looked up and said, Pastor, let me tell you my story. I was married once and my husband left me for another woman. I met a man, got pregnant by him, he promised to marry me. He was not from my country, but he went home to his country, left me pregnant. I could not bear to, could not just bear at all to bear that child. It was 18 years ago, she said, and I had an abortion. And I felt guilty every day since then. What was my role with that woman? Was it to reinforce the guilt that the Holy Spirit had already brought to her mind? Was that my role? What is the gospel? The gospel is the incredible good news that your sins can be forgiven. It's the incredible good news that Christ will give you a new start. It's the incredible good news that whatever you've done in the past, there is no condemnation. The gospel is a message that is transgenerational. It leaps across the generations. 
It's not a first century gospel or a second century gospel or a fifth century gospel. It's the gospel for all generations. It bridges cultures. I have preached the gospel of Christ in some very difficult spots in Africa. And I've seen God transform people's lives. I've seen the gospel take people in Rwanda, Hutus and Tutsis, who had participated in one of the worst genocides in the history of the world. During the genocide in Rwanda, bodies were stacked this high and there was nobody to bury them in the streets and dogs came and ate the flesh. They threw the bodies into the river and the bodies were clogged. Over one million people were slaughtered in a six-month period. But I have seen Tutsis and Hutus, Tutsis who have participated in that slaughter, I've seen them fall at the feet of, uh, uh, and, and just weep. And I've seen Hutus weep who have killed Tutsi wives or Tutsi uh, children. And I've seen the gospel bring them together with God's grace with all the psychology could not do but the gospel broke down those prejudices and and people were found forgiveness and mercy and grace and so the Bible says here in Revelation chapter 14 here is a message for this generation a message of forgiveness a message of reconciliation a message of God's grace Grace that forgives and pardons, but grace that is powerful enough to transform life. Revelation 14 is a remnant church end time message. Revelation 14 and verse 6 says, And I saw another angel flying in the middle of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. Here's something eternal. What is the gospel? It's the good news of God's grace of pardon and forgiveness. It's the good news of God's power that it can change life to preach to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Here's a message that leaps across geographical boundaries. Here's a message that leaps across cultural barriers. Here's a message that includes all of us in an age of racism, in an age of prejudice. Here is something that appeals to young people. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is not a church of one nationality. It is not a church of one race. It's not a church of one culture. It is an international movement that bridges all cultures. Here is a multinational, multicultural church that includes all of us. And heaven is going to look a lot like GYC. What do you say? Because heaven's going to look like all of us, isn't it? That's what God is like. And so, this generation is looking for something that breaks down walls of prejudice. This generation is looking for something that breaks down walls of racism, that has separated people based on color and culture. But here, the three angels' messages says the gospel is to go to what? Every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So here is something that bridges all those cultures in an international message that breaks down racism. Seventh-day Adventist Church is in over 200 countries in the world, an international movement. You know, it is not the Seventh-day Adventist Church of Africa. It's the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Africa. It's not the Seventh-day Adventist Church of Europe. It's the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Europe because there's one Seventh-day Adventist Church. You may not like it, but you are my brother and you're my sister right? 
Now, some of the brothers and sisters in the family, they haven't quite got it yet. But they're still part of the family, right? We'll bring them along if they stay with us long enough, right? The everlasting gospel to go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. God has a message tailor-made for a generation filled with racism and prejudice that would, that would cross all cultures and all barriers. That's the message of Revelation 14. This is no 19th century mentality message. It's a relevant message of end time present truth for the remnant. We continue, Revelation 14, verse 7, saying with a what? Boy, you're great. Saying with a loud voice. I knew this was after dinner. I knew they'd give me this seminar after dinner. Saying with a what kind of voice? You got it. Saying with a loud voice. I know they're Europeans. You know, Europeans, they're very quiet. You know, they sit in their seats until they come to the soccer game. I mean, then they're up there rioting at those soccer games. You know, they tell me Europeans have no emotion. I say, what are you talking about? I saw those people at those football games. Come on now. All right, that's another topic. All right, I won't get on that one. Saying with a what kind of voice? Oh, that was your soccer voice, your football voice. I'm an American. I call it soccer. I don't know nothing about that. Anyway, saying with a loud voice, fear God. Now, that fear, you got a better word I know in German than fear there. What's that word in German? Give it to me. German, come on. Angst voice? Saying with a angst God? You're not supposed to angst God. Somebody in German, that's not the heavenly language. Give me another one. Give me something better than German. Dutch, you got angst God in Dutch too? What do you got in Dutch? Fresh God. What's fresh God? But, but no good in Dutch. Okay. I got to go back to the Greek original. Somebody, somebody's language has to get this right. Somebody got Greek? Give me, give me the Greek. Quick, 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 quick. Okay. It is not fear in the sense to be afraid of. It is what? It's not angst. It's not uh, like the Americans say fear. It's not that Dutch word. What was that Dutch word? Fresh, yeah, no, it's not that one. Um, okay, it is, it is reverence, respect, honor. See, it's not this trembling with fear. Uh, it's not this, this, this angst in your heart, and it's not this fear that the Americans have. Okay, um, Revelation 4. I always thought some of these European languages are the language of heaven, but I'm, I'm getting disabused of that now. Okay, saying with a loud voice, fear God, that is, that is reverence God, respect God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Now let's pause on the hour of his judgment has come. We'll pause on the hour of God's judgment has come. What is the issue in the judgment hour? And why is the judgment significant for an end time generation? Does it say the hour of our judgment has come? Is that what the text says? What does it say? Tell me what the text says. The hour of whose judgment? Who is the his? God. So this is the hour of God's judgment. God is on trial before the universe. Satan declared that God was unjust and God was unfair in the way he administered the universe. In the final hours of earth's history, the judgment will reveal the justice and mercy of God. And as your name comes up in judgment, as my name comes up in judgment, the whole universe stops. And God reveals in your life that he has tried to do everything he could to save you. As our name comes up in judgment, it shows the worth of every human being. There is not some stroke of some cosmic pen that says all these people are lost, all these people are saved. 
you and I become evidence in the judgment. The judgment is not so much about us as it is about God because it's the hour of his judgment. And in that judgment, a loving God reveals before a waiting world and a watching universe that he has done everything he could to save us, that there is nothing more that heaven could have done, that God sent his spirit to human hearts. God convicted people by his grace and by his power. God revealed the majesty of his love on the cross of Calvary. God sent Jesus here. God arranged providences in our lives. And when, in, in the judgment, with the destiny of the world hanging, where Satan has accused God before the universe, and Satan has said, God is unfair, God is unjust. In the judgment, Jesus steps forth and he says before the whole universe, could I have done anything more to save that man? Could I have any, done anything more to save that woman? And before the whole universe, they bow down and say, worthy, worthy is the Lamb to receive honor, glory, and power because, God, you did everything you could. There's not one stone you left unturned. There's not one thing you could have done. So the judgment reveals his righteousness. What is one of the fundamental questions in addition to the question of self-worth in this generation? One of the fundamental questions is, why is there evil in the world? Your friends will ask you that. If God is so good, why is the world so bad? If God is so good, why does he allow suffering? And what we say to them is there is a conflict between good and evil in Christ and between Christ and Satan. But Jesus will set all things right in the judgment. In the judgment, righteousness will reign. In the judgment, Jesus' life is not fair, but God is fair. If you only had this life, you would have a distorted picture of fairness, honesty, and integrity, and justice. Some people have said to me, well, Mark, life is very fair. And I have said to them, you don't know much of life if you think it's fair. Is it fair for a baby to be born HIV positive because the mother had HIV AIDS? Is that fair? Is it fair for a young baby to be born as a cocaine addict because the mother was, or father, or the mother was a cocaine addict? Is it, bore, is it right for children to be born orphans because of a war that occurred in tribal conflict in Africa? And so you got millions of orphans that are starving to death. Is that fair? Is it fair that you have such greed in some countries that millions are starving? Life is not very fair. Is it fair that a young Adventist Christian is coming home from university, hit by a drunk driver, and left a quadriplegic for the rest of his life, and the drunk driver walks away without a scratch? Is it fair that a woman who has been such faithful to her husband is battered, her nose is broken and bloody by a husband who's been drinking? Is it fair that some man breaks into a theater in Colorado and starts shooting and puts five bullets in a baby lie sitting there, or a young child, is all that fair? Life is not fair, but God is. Life is not fair, but God is. God has never promised that you always would be treated fairly in life. If you look to be treated fairly in life every time, you're going to end up bitter. You're going to end up angry because you're going to say, oh, that wasn't fair and I am so mad. Life is not 
fair at times. But God promises two things. Number one, when you are treated unfairly and unjustly, He is there with you to strengthen you, to support you, and that you will become out of that experience with Him not bitter but better. You, he will turn your scars into stars for His glory. That when you walk with Jesus Christ, the loving Creator will take the evil that the devil throws against you and turn it to His glory forever and ever and ever. Faith is safely trusting Him when the injustice and the unfairness comes out in life. He promises that. Not that you would always be treated fairly, but that He would be with you. And He promises, secondly, that in the judgment, when the pages of life are unfolded, He will help you to see that in your darkest hours, He was with you. That in, in, in the most unfairness of life, that He was there. And He'll help you to see why that was allowed in your life. And in the judgment, He will make up for you all the unfairness, all the injustice. God will make that up to you and you'll shine with Him forever and ever. You will travel with Him as a prince or a princess from planet to planet, from star to star. What does the judgment say to a contemporary generation? What does the judgment say to Seventh-day Adventists? The judgment does not strike fear in our hearts. In the judgment we praise God because we know that in judgment God will reveal to us every single thing that's happened, why it's happened, and how he was with us when it did happen. In the judgment, he will reveal how through all of the trials and difficulties of life that he was with us to strengthen us and encourage us that we were not left alone. In the judgment, he will set all things right and reveal to us that he's fair and righteous. And in the judgment, sin will be struck down, destroyed forever, and we can reign with him. So this three angels message, what does it say to a contemporary society? Three things so, forth, three things so far. One, the three angels message is the everlasting gospel. It speaks of forgiveness, mercy, and power. It says that you're not a genetic accident locked into your heredity and environment. That it is not merely your heredity that determines who you are, not merely your environment that determines who you are, but as you choose to serve the living Christ, there is forgiveness, grace, and mercy. There's a new start and new power. That's the first message of the angel. It's the everlasting gospel. Second message of the angel it goes to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. It's an international message. What does the three angels' message say to our society? It says that, that racial barriers are broken down. It says that prejudice is demolished. It says that God has a people who are bonded together, not by their cultural, ethnic backgrounds, not by the color of their skin, but by their commitment to a common Lord and their commitment to a common message and their commitment to a common mission. You and I are one family. We have one mission, one message, and we have one desire to finish the work of God on earth. What do you say? Third thing about the three angels' message that speaks to a contemporary society. It speaks of fairness. It speaks of justice. It speaks of a God that will sit upon his throne. It speaks of a God that will make all things right. Now, there are a couple other things about the three angels' message that we want to notice right here as well. Notice that text. It says, saying with a loud voice, fear God, give glory to him. Let's pause on the expression, give God glory. 
give God glory. How do we give God glory? In the message of giving God glory, what does that mean? If God is my creator, do I give him what is the highest of everything he's created? If God is my creator, the highest in all creation are human beings. We are the highest order of all creation that God made. God gave us a mind to think and to reason. If I'm going to give God glory, will I work with him to build up what he's created, or will I work contrary to him to break down what he's created? Give God glory. Take your Bible, please, and go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 6 first. We want to unpack a little bit about this idea of giving God glory in a contemporary society. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Our body is not a fun house, it's a temple. Our body is not a what? Fun house, it is a temple. Or do you not know, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own? For you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So how do I glorify God? I am twice Christ's. I am Christ by creation, and I am Christ by redemption. So I glorify God in my body. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Inherent in the three angels' message is a call to eat and to drink and to give God glory in the physical lifestyle habit patterns that I have. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of what? God. So here is a message. Whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So here is a message of a lifestyle. The way I eat, the way I drink, what I eat, what I drink, my exercise life, my health life. So deeply embedded in the three angels' message, in the message to worship the Creator, is a message to cooperate with the Creator in building up the highest object of His creation, our bodies. It's a call to that which I eat and drink to give glory to God. So this is not Greek philosophy. This is revolutionary new. In Greek philosophy, the idea was, Plato and Socrates said, the soul is a immortal entity within the body that leaves the body at death. So therefore, you can eat or drink or treat your body whatever way you want because that doesn't affect the soul. It's called Greek dualism, that there's a difference between the, the soul and the material body. Christianity taught something radically different. The Apostle Paul came blazing across the horizon of the New Testament. And if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul something, taught something radically different than Greek dualism. You're going to notice it here, 1 Thessalonians, and you're looking at chapter 5, and you're looking there at verse 23. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament taught something radically different 
than this philosophy of the Greeks, that this dualism of the Greeks. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're going to look here at verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, what's the next word? Holy, completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He also calls you who is faithful, who also will do it. So here the Apostle Paul says, the church waiting for the coming of Christ would be sanctified wholly, body, mind, and spirit, that there would be a people committed to Christ, that they only want to think the thoughts of Jesus and they want their minds filled with divine, eternal things that their bodies would be set aside as his temples, that their emotions would be guided by his spirit. And so here is a message of physical, mental, and spiritual wholeness. Do you hear a great deal today from people even who practice Eastern mysticism about holistic health? Do you hear that? Throughout Europe today, there is a great emphasis on holistic health mind, body, spirit, health. Why? Because this is the devil's counterfeit in Eastern mysticism, Buddhism, Hinduism, etc., to God's genuine. The three angels' message given to us by God is to prepare a people completely for the coming of Jesus. What we eat affects the quality of blood that goes to our brain. And the quality of blood that goes to our brain helps to nourish those brain cells. And the Holy Spirit does not communicate with your big toe or your thumb, but the Holy Spirit speaks through your brain to guide the whole body, right? And so if the devil can control your brain by your physical habits, that's why the devil wants to get people's minds anesthetized through alcohol. Because if you destroy brain cells through alcohol and you anesthetize the brain, the, the receptors of the brain cannot be as clear as discerning the discriminating work of the Holy Spirit. You know, Dr. Melvin Nisley, University of South Carolina, took students at the university. He was doing experiments on alcohol and the blood coagulation that goes to the brain. And this is what he did. He, he wanted to demonstrate to his students the effect of even social drinking on the brain. And so he took students into his classroom and he developed an electron microscope that could look into the retina of the eye and see the agglutination of the blood passing through the eye to the brain. Um, you know, the blood that passes through the vessels, through, through the eye, Go, that blood is some of the blood that goes to the brain, but it's very easy from a microscope perspective to look at that blood because the very small capillaries of the eye, they're very close to the skin. You can even see them. Sometimes you look in the mirror and you see these little blood vessels. So what he did is he took students, and he knew these students were drinkers anyway, and uh, Dr. Nisley took the students, and he gave one of them one can of beer. He gave another one of them three cans of beer, and another one of them, seven cans of beer. He took those students then, and he put them in a hotel rooms, all separate. One hotel room, two hotel rooms, three hotel rooms. He measured the agglutination of their eye, the blood in the eye, the clotting of the blood vessels that go to the brain. 
he measured it before they drank. He himself did not know which student drank how much of the alcohol. He didn't know, but he had it given to them. He had it administered in the thing. The next day, he brought them out of the hotel to classroom. He looked at their eye capillaries through the microscope, and he said, based on the clotting of blood in your eye going to the brain, you drank one can. Based on the, your blood, you drank two. You drank, you drank three. You drank five. He predicted it right every single time. Then he showed his students the slides, and he said, look, you look on the screen, and he pointed out that even moderate drinking, moderate drinking, affects the frontal lobe of the brain, conscience, reason, and judgment. And it affects it in a way so you have less discernment. Recently in the United States, there was a study done with medical students. They allowed medical students to take three drinks of wine before a medical exam. They found that the students, and this was a mock exam, the students took the exam, they felt much more relaxed. The students that drank felt they did much better on the exam than they actually did, and they did much worse. They gave the same students a comparable exam. When the students took the comparable exam without drinking, they felt they did worse, but they did much better. That study showed that wine, even in moderation, affects the frontal lobes of the brain so you lack your perception. Why is it that the Federal Aviation Committee says to a pilot, you cannot drink anything 48 hours before the flight? How would you feel if you saw your pilot walking on the plane with a bottle of wine? Would you get on that flight? Well, I'm on my way to heaven, folk. The devil's desire is to control your thinking through your physical practices. That's what the devil's desire is. God's desire is that we control our physical practices through our mind. The Holy Spirit speaks to the brain. The three angels' message is not an archaic message that it's 100 years old for the 19th century. It speaks to this generation about giving glory to God in every aspect of their lives. It speaks about holistic living, physically, mentally, spiritually. So what have we seen so far about the three angels' message? Number one, we have seen that it's the gospel, that it is forgiveness, grace, and mercy to a generation that longs for it. We have seen that it is the power of God. We've seen that it's an international message that spreads, that, that bridges all the cultural groups and ethnic groups. It goes from generation to generation. We've seen that. We've seen that this message is a message of righteousness and fairness and the judgment hour that God reveals that all things are right. This is the message of the remnant. We've seen that this message is a message of wholeness, physical, mental, spiritual. That Adventists have a unique opportunity at a time when people are wanting better health. The Western world is in a major health crisis today. Heart disease is the number one killer in Europe today. Cancer is off the charts 
we have an opportunity in this generation. Part of the three angels' message is a message of physical, mental, spiritual wholeness. We have an opportunity to call people to health. I thank God for this message. You know, I am 67 years old tomorrow. 67 years old tomorrow. I travel the world. Airplanes rarely ever get sick. I cannot remember the last time that I was sick. Wherever I am, I try to eat of the most healthful, plant-based, vegetarian diet possible. Not as a matter of legalism, but I see that that is a great gift that God has given to me. Every day, my wife and I try to walk a minimum of an hour to an hour and a half. So tonight after class, you will see me out there, maybe skipping supper, out there by the Danube, walking, 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 and walking some more. We try to walk every single day. We try to get adequate rest. We try not to stay up all hours of the night with trivia. Because I know that with the schedule that I'm on, here's my last six weeks. Six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, Norway. After that, next Sabbath, England. Next Sabbath, Serbia. Next Sabbath, appointments in America. Next Sabbath, St. Martin's Island, two Sabbaths ago. Next Sabbath, Martinique, uh, French Island. Next Sabbath here. So I was in eight different countries in eight different weeks. You say, Pastor, you look a little tired. Well, you don't know. Um, but you know what? Look, I thank God for the three angels' message. I thank God for the remnant church. This is not legalism, but it's a message that God has given to you and me as a gift, a gift of his love so that we can be healthy and happy and live a life that is a light in this world that's productive for him. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, and we're looking at the last part of it. We alluded to it. What does Revelation chapter 14, verse 7 say? Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and all that in them is. Worship him that made heaven and earth and all that in them is. Worship the creator. So here's a call to worship the creator. We talked about that. In an age of evolution, God calls us back. Back to worshiping our creator. He calls us back to worshiping the one that made us. He says you have worth, you have self-esteem. He says I made you once and I can recreate your heart into my image. Look, for example, at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. What does creation say to a postmodern generation? It says God made you, God cares for you. It says you're not a product of your heredity and environment. You're not locked in some genetic code that you can't break. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? Creature or creation. He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In Christ, we are a new creation. The Christ that created us, the Christ that fashioned us, the Christ that made us, that Christ has power to recreate us. We serve the God that spoke and worlds came into existence. We serve the God that spoke and suns and moons and stars appeared. We serve the God that spoke and he carpeted this earth with living green and he drew his finger through the earth and spoke and streams flowed and birds sang and God spoke and flowers appeared and fruit trees appeared and God spoke life and breathed life into Adam. God spoke all of that, the loving creator if he did that once if that he had that power therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new what 
creation. He's a new creation. What does the three angels' message say about creation? It says God created you, you have worth. It says God created you, you have purpose. But it also says you do not have to be locked in bondage. You don't have to be a slave to habits that simply are destroying you. You can be a new creation in Christ, the same Christ that created the world once and brought light out of darkness wants to bring light into your life. The same Christ that created you and fashioned you. This Christ wants to recreate you in his image. That's incredible good news. Do you see in this three angels' message a message of present truth for this hour? Do you see in this three angels' message something unique for this generation? There is here something that's incredibly precious. Now, I'm going to take the rest of our class. We're going to take some questions. What time is it right now? You know, the preachers get preaching, they don't think anything about time. What time? Four o'clock? All right, we got another hour. I need to exercise you now. I'm not letting you out. If I let you out, you're gone forever. Okay, we're going to take a break, but we're going to do it right here. We're going to exercise. The preacher needs exercise. You need exercise, too. Your brain's getting a little foggy. All right, let's stand up. We're going to exercise. Those of you who were in my class this morning, you know this one. All right, get ready. You ready? You're lifting your hands to heaven ten times around like this. One, two, three, four, five. Somebody just took a picture. They said, Pastor Philly is leading him in a Pentecostal meeting. <laughs> 11, 12, 13, 14. You tell them that's not true, that stuff. A Pentecostal in the sense of Acts 2, sure. Okay. Brace your left hand up high. Your other left hand, please. No, no, no. Come on. I knew I'd get five people on that one. Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Right hand, please. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Stand on your left foot. Kick out your right leg, not the person in front of you. <laughs> five times. One, two. You don't have to hold on to anything. One, two, three, four. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You've got to get blood going there. Eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. Come on. Fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. Okay, let's do the other one. Okay. One, two, three, four, five. Left one. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. You're doing good. Hands on your ribs. What did I tell my class this morning? If you can't find them, keep coming. I've got a weight control program coming. No. <laughs> Hands on your ribs. Okay. I want you to breathe in through your nose. Now, you've got to do it slow or you hypoventilate and you'll faint. I don't have any smelling salt, so you've got to do it slow. You breathe like this. Watch. You breathe in through your nose as deep as you possibly can. Get the air ray down in your, through your diaphragm. So you, Now you're breathing out like this. And you're coughing. <coughs> I do that to detect how many smokers are in the room. <laughs> the guys that keep coughing. Then I know I got to put in the five-day plan. Okay. In through your nose. Out through your mouth. In through your nose. I'm just trying to get some blood circulating so you get the last hour of the class. One more time through your nose. Now only through your mouth. As deep as you can through your mouth and then breathe out as hard as you can. That was good. Again. Doing good. One more. Begin to walk in place. 
We're going to do it like this. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You're doing good, but faster. You're too slow. So 12, 13, 14. Come on, let's go. 15, 16, 17, 18. I need to get some blood circulating. I know, I know seven people fell asleep in the last class. Eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. What am I on? 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Let's go to 50. 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26. Faster, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31. 32, you're doing great. 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42. If I can do this, so can you. I'm older than anybody in this room. What, I forgot the number. Let's keep going. <laughs> All right. You're turning this way, facing this way. I need this young man here. You're going to help me, help me, help me. Okay, okay. Face this way. Okay. Your fingers are over the shoulder, your thumbs in the back. You're ready. I'm going to teach you massage. This is good. Don't get nervous. Don't get nervous now. I'm a preacher. Don't worry. Okay. Now, you push in with your thumb, and at the same time you push in with your thumb, you push down with your fingers. So the movement is like this, in with your thumb, down with your fingers. Okay, like this. We're going like this. One, that's great. Two, three. So you should be getting a little skin that comes up. Not that hard. You're not killing the person in front of you. Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six. Keep going. Seven, eight. We're going to go to 15, I think. Nine, 10, 15, 11. 12, 13, 14, 15. Turn around this way now. Uh, okay, you ready? One, two. Oh, that's great. You're doing good. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was my turn that time. Okay. All right. Sit down. Okay. All right, all right. I want to, the next 45 minutes or so, we're going to give you a chance for some questions at the end. Next 45 minutes or so, I want to look at this issue. We're going to take a look at, just spot check, some of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And then I'm going to spend some time on the Laodicean message and the concept of the remnant in the Laodicean message. You know what? Based on time, let's go directly to that. We're going to go to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We're going to look at the Laodicean message. Let me give you a historical background of the book of Laodicea as you're turning to it. We're, we're, with this hour, we're talking about the remnant in Laodicea. Here's the historical background. Laodicea was located in southwestern Turkey. When, when John wrote... The, to the seven churches, each of the cities was a real city, okay? So he's not writing to make-believe cities. What was Laodicea like? Laodicea was a city of about 150,000 people. Now, how do we know the size of ancient cities? Here's something that's interesting for you. When the archaeologists excavate an ancient city, and they excavate the stadium because these Roman cities most of the time had stadiums or theaters. If you take the size of the stadium in the city, let's suppose the stadium could have seat 12,000. When you excavate it, you can see that. If you multiply that by 10, you'll get usually the population of the ancient city. So they excavate usually the stadium, and let's suppose the stadium seats 12,000. You multiply it by 10, that's 120,000. That's the size of the ancient city. And when you do your excavations, that usually proves out true. You excavate the agora, the, the uh, marketplace, you excavate some homes, and you try to find the extensive nature of the city. But you do that, 
by you start. So, so Laodicea was between 120 and 150,000. Here's what we know about Laodicea. We know three major things about it anyway. Number one, it was extremely wealthy. Laodicea had banks. They had gold coins. In 62 AD, and this is going to become important to understand the book, by understand the message to Laodicea, which understand the cultural background. In 62 AD, a earthquake totally destroyed Laodicea. Devastating destruction, first century AD 62. When it destroyed them, the Roman government, because Laodicea was a, um, like a province, it was very loyal to Rome, the Roman government said, look, we got enough money, we are going to rebuild Laodicea for you. The Laodiceans said, forget it. You don't need to rebuild us. We got enough money. We will use our money to rebuild ourselves. The Laodiceans were very wealthy, very proud. Second thing about Laodicea, you ladies who like shopping malls would have loved Laodicea. Laodicea had a wool. And they cultivated a sheep a kind of, that, ha, that produced a black wool. And people came from all over the Mediterranean world to buy those garments. So there were great shopping bazaars. You could buy silk, you could buy perfume, you could buy gems, but particularly these black garments. So they were clothed well. They were rich, wealthy, you get it? Clothed well, third thing. Laodicea was an educational center, and they had a very famous medical university. In that medical university, they developed what was called Pergian ISAV. That is uh, a, a, an ISAV that, it's, that was first like a powder, and then you mix it with water, and you put it on the eyes, and it was quite effective for ocular or for eye diseases. So, Laodicea's claim to fame was that it was very wealthy, very materialistic. It had a lot of sporting events. You can see the theaters that were there, the ruins of the theater for plays. Great musicals were there. It had a lot of horse racing. There was a, like a Circumus Maximus, a great horse racing track that was there that you could see. It was an educational center center of university culture, and as well, it was a fashion center, a great shopping place. With that background, we go to the church at Laodicea. Now, there are some things that are quite important. Sometimes things that are obvious, you miss. How many churches are listed in Revelation chapter 2 and 3? How many are there? The seven churches. Of those seven, which one is Laodicea? Is it the first one? Is it the third one? Which one is it? What you have said, if you understand what you've said, will save you from a thousand heresies. Laodicea is the last. Is there a movement called out of Laodicea? Is there? There are those that look at the Seventh-day Adventist church today and they see Laodicean complacency. They see worldliness. They see lack of faithfulness in some parts, even by some pastors, even by some administrators, to Scripture. And their idea is we must separate from the main movement because of the fact that the movement is not pure. 
Well, there are many fallacies with that theory. One fallacy is the wheat and tares will grow together until the what? Harvest. The other fallacy is that Laodicea is God's last church and there's no calling out in the Bible of Laodicea. What the Bible teaches is not a calling out in the last days. Now follow me closely. Down through the centuries, when one group is apostatized, God has always called out another group, right? So you have the days of Abraham. God calls out Abraham from the majority. That's a calling out. When you have Israel, God calls out Israel from the nations around them. That's a calling out. When Israel disobeys God, God eventually calls out New Testament Christianity from Judaism, right? But then New Testament Christianity apostatizes. So you have a what? Reformation, where God calls out the Protestant movement. But then the Protestant movement doesn't go far enough and God calls out the what? Adventist movement. So the question becomes, will there keep being a, a calling out and a calling out and a calling out? God's answer is no. There will not be a calling out of Laodicea. There will be a shaking out from Laodicea. You see the difference? You see the difference? Now keep your finger there and let's go here to Hebrews. In the last days there'll be a shaking out. So the worldly elements will be with us in the church until the final crisis. When that final crisis breaks, those whose sympathies, and I'm quoting Ellen White, those whose sympathies have been leaning toward the world will go out. Second selected message is page 380. Second selected message is 380. The church may appear as about to fall. So the church may appear as what, everybody? About to what? Fall. These are her words. But it does not fall, I'm quoting, It remains while the sinners in Zion, where will the sinners be? Where will they be? In Zion, will be sifted out. So we do not see a calling out of Laodicea. We see the wheat and tares growing together till the harvest. We see a shaking out of worldly elements at the end. And the reason we are not interested in any offshoot is because the offshoot shoot off, but the remnant remains. Okay, here you are. Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. I have people say to me all the time, well, the church is worldly. And I say, look, if you focus on that, if by beholding we become changed, I know some groups and movements that they spent their whole history focusing on what's wrong with the Adventist church. And by beholding we become changed. And they don't realize it, but they have become so critical and developed such a critical spirit that they've spent most of their life and energy focusing on what's wrong rather than taking the gospel to the world. I realize that the church isn't what God wants it to be. If it was, we'd be in heaven by now, right? I realize the wheat and tares grow together till the harvest. But I also recognize that there will be a great shaking at the end and those worldly elements will go out. I recognize we're on target because God talks about Laodicea. Okay, Hebrews chapter chapter 12 look verse 27 now this yet once more so Hebrews 12 25 and 26 is talked about Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments when he spoke and the earth was shook but look what he says in verse 27 and 28 now this yet once more once more that is at end time indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken So the things that are shaken, the worldly elements in the church, they are going to be what, everybody? Removed. Indicates the removal of those things that are shaken 
as of those things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may do what? The things that cannot be shaken. Last part of verse 27. What is it? They, they remain. We remain loyal. The remnant remains. The remnant doesn't shoot off. This is not a calling out in the last days. This is a shaking out of worldly elements. Therefore, verse 28, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So the issue is whether you and I will be faithful to God and to his message and not be shaken out, but by his grace, God's message, God's movement, God's church is going to triumph. What did Jesus say? He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not, what? Prevail against it. So, back to Revelation chapter 3. We're looking here at Revelation 3. The Laodicean church is the last church. There is not a calling out. Now, let me ask you this. Revelation 3 verse 14, to the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, Revelation 3, verse 14, to the angel of the church of Laodicea. What does the word Laodicea mean? Ah, you're good. Somebody, somebody has it. You know, most Adventist audiences answer me, it means lukewarm. It's not the meaning of the word. That's the condition of the church. The word Laodicea means a people adjudged. A people adjudged. That's the meaning of the word. So the Laodicean church is God's last day church of the judgment hour. Okay? Now let's go. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 and onward. These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I don't want to go much further. We've got to stop there. These things says the Amen. Why is it that the Amen is used here? Jesus is the first and the last. Amen means it is so. Amen is an expression that is used in the Bible to say, this is true. This is true. Now, you get a good example of this. Keep your finger here. Jesus is the great amen. We're looking over at Corinthians. And we're looking there at the book of Corinthians and you're going to look at 2 Corinthians. I want to show you some things about the title he's here of Jesus that are used. They're really remarkable. And um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen to the glory of God through us. Look, all, let's go back and read verse, let's read verse 18, 19, and 20. You'll get the context. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, 19, and 20. But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Here, Paul says, when God makes a promise, Jesus says, yes. When God makes a promise, Jesus says, amen, that's it. 
Who is it that writes to the church at Laodicea? He is the amen, the one whose promises are true. Jesus said, Paul said, my God shall supply all your need. And Jesus says, amen, that's right. Yes, that promise is true. The Bible says, if any man confesses his sin, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive his sin. Jesus says, yes, amen, that promise is true. Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Jesus says, yes, amen, that promise is true. So who is it that writes to Laodicea? He is the amen, the one whose promises are true, the one who can take Laodicea from its complacency to new life in Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 3 back. Revelation 3 back. It's very easy to skip over some of the words here. Revelation chapter 3, we look there, and the Bible says in Revelation 3 and verse 14 and onward, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness. What does it mean that he is the faithful and true witness? A witness tells a story. A witness shares what he knows. A witness testifies to what is true. Who does Jesus tell the story of? Who is Jesus the faithful and true witness of? Who is he? The Father. He's the faithful and true witness of the Father. Remember when Philip came to Jesus, he said to Jesus, show us the Father. And what did Jesus say? If you've seen me, you have seen the what? Father. Jesus touches the eyes of the blind that are open. He touches the ears of the deaf and they're unstopped. He touches the withered man's arm and it's healed. Jesus causes the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the lame to run. He's the faithful witness of the Father. So Jesus is saying to the church at Laodicea, I'm the amen, the one who's whose promises are so true. I'm the faithful witness of my Father. I have come to give you new eyesight, Laodicea, so that you can see divine realities. I've come so that you can hear eternal truth. I've come to heal the palsied nature of your soul. I am the faithful and true witness of the Father. What you see me doing in life, in acts of love and mercy, Laodicea, you can break out of your selfishness, break out of your complacency. The Laodicean message is the most encouraging in the Bible because it presents us a loving Christ who reveals the Father. Next phrase, verse 14. The beginning of the creation of God. Now, English is poor, poor, poor translation here. The beginning of the creation of God. It almost gives you the impression that God created Christ first. The Jehovah Witnesses use this Bible passage to try to demonstrate from the Bible that Christ is not eternal, but he is a created being. But if Christ is not eternal, if he's a created being, then he can't offer eternal life. Because if there was a point that Christ was not, it means that he was not eternal. And if he is not eternal, he can't offer eternal life. Who, okay, now I've got to see if anything's closer to heaven here. Languages, help me out now. Beginning of the creation of God. Anybody have anything better than beginning of the creation of God? Any translation that's better than beginning of... Yes. Oh, the beginning of the creation. Mm, halfway there, but you're not there yet. Okay, yes. The origin... Ah, origin in the sense of originator may work. Yeah, yes. Chief of the creation of God. Oh, you're getting close. What language is that? What is it? 
Young's literal translation, that's pretty good, yes. The ruler of God's creation. What, what are you reading from? International. Well, let me tell you about the original language. The original language of the New Testament is Greek, and the word there is arche. And arche means the active agent in creation. Not the beginning of in the sense that you were the first one creation created, but in the beginner of the creation of God. The originator, yours I think said origin, the originator of the creation of God. In other words, Christ is the beginning of the creation of God in the sense that he began it, not in the sense that he was created. Jesus is eternal, right? From everlasting to everlasting. But he's the beginner of the creation of God. He's the one that created the world. He created all things by Jesus All things are created by Jesus Christ, Ephesians 3, 9, Hebrews 1, verse 3. He created the worlds. Colossians chapter 1, by him and in him all things exist. So Christ is the creator. Now look, who is it that writes to Laodicea? First, he's the amen, the one whose promises are true. Laodicea, you have hope, you can claim my promises. He is the faithful and true witness. He's the one that witnesses of the Father's love and grace for, for Laodicea. He is the beginning of the creation of God. Look, Laodicea, if Jesus began the work, he can finish the work. Look, Laodicea, if Jesus started something in you, he can finish something in you. Look, Laodicea, he is the beginning of the creation of God. He can transform your life. He is all-powerful. You need not lie back in Laodicea in complacency. So Christ is introduced as the one whose promises are true, the one who reveals the Father, the all-powerful creator. 15, I know your works, that you're neither cold or hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you're lukewarm, neither cold or hot, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Notice, cold or hot, cold, totally against Christ. Hot, totally for Christ. Lukewarm, right in the middle. Complacent, apathetic, indifferent. In Laodicea, across the valley, you have Hierapolis. Hierapolis is about six miles across the valley from Laodicea. You go there today, Hierapolis, and you'll see these hot water springs. Unfortunately, what they've done is they've run the hot water off the springs into hotels. So you can go to the hotels and take mineral baths. I've done that many times with my tour groups. But they have what they call travertines. Travertines were made back in the first century, and they're narrow culverts to carry the hot water from Hierapolis, we have this hot water, over to Laodicea. And they go across that valley, and they're along the ground. Some of them were aqueducts above the ground. And so you have these hot water springs that came out of Hierapolis, traveled about, say, 10 kilometers across the valley, and they came down to Laodicea. By the time they got there, the water at Laodicea was so putrid that you wanted to vomit it out. And so Jesus is using that illustration. Then he says to me, says to all of us, verse 17, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy. Now remember what we studied about? Laodicea was a city that was rich and have need of nothing and do not know. The problem with Laodicea is she does not know. She thinks she's on fire for God, but she does not know. And the one whose promises are true, the one who is the great amen, 
The faithful and true witness speaks to her. The all-powerful creator speaks to the church of the judgment hour. And he says, because you say you're wealthy and need of nothing, but you don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Can you imagine the church in the first century of Laodicea when they got this message? You're poor. What do you mean we're poor? We're not poor. An earthquake destroyed our city and we rebuilt it. We had our own money. What do you mean we're naked? We have the best fashions in the world. What do you mean we're blind? We're not blind at all. We have a university and we produce Pergian ISAV. Can you imagine the Laodiceans when they got this message? Incidentally, there was a church, a Christian church at Laodicea. And it was very apathetic. The world sucked it in. And you can, it, it's very fascinating. Then that condition of that Laodicean church at Laodicea represents God's entire end time church there just before the coming of Jesus. Now notice, he says, verse 16, I counsel you to buy from me gold tried in the fire. I counsel you to buy. How do you buy? Buying implies a cost. How do you buy gold tried in the fire? You remember in Isaiah 55, it says, come every one of you and buy milk and honey and buy it without, buy the bread of life without price. How do you buy? The coinage is not money, it's time. God has created you and he's given you time. And the question is, how do you spend that time? Do you spend time in his presence? allowing him to speak to your heart and give you a genuine, authentic Christian experience? Do you spend time in his word, allowing him to change your life radically through the word? The problem with Laodicea is that Laodicea has all the trappings, all the externals. She has all the outer. Laodicea has a doctrinal correctness in her head. Laodicea is tithe-paying and Sabbath-keeping and health-reforming to a sense. But Laodicea has lost her experience of vitality with the living Christ that transforms her into a powerful agency to rock the world for Jesus. And so here he says, I counsel you to buy of me, to spend time in my presence, to get the gold. What is the gold. What is the gold refined in the fire? We don't have to guess. The Bible tells us. First Peter chapter 1 verse 7. What is this gold tried in the fire? That Jesus offers the remnant. That Jesus offers his last day people. That Jesus offers every young person today. Christ offers you an authentic, real, genuine Christian experience. First Peter chapter 1. We look there at verse 6 and 7. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being more precious than what? Gold that perishes, that it's tested by fire, may be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here he says that the preciousness of your faith be more precious than gold tried in the fire. 
What is the gold tried in the fire? It is faith that works by love. It is a faith that comes from spending time in God's presence. It's a genuine, vital Christianity. What is faith? It's trusting God in every aspect of my life. So Jesus is saying to Laodicea, I counsel you that for the end time, when the crisis really breaks in the last days of earth's history, that you have spent time in my presence, that you have a real, authentic faith, that you have something that's far beyond the superficial, external faith, but that you have an authentic, life-changing faith in your heart, I counsel you to buy me gold and dry in the fire, and white raiments. Now notice, there's a sequence here. First, it's internal, the faith in your heart, the vitality that changes your life. Then it says in white garments. What are the white garments? Revelation chapter 19. The Bible explains itself. We need not guess. Revelation chapter 19. What does Laodicea need? She needs a vital faith. She needs a new relationship with Jesus. She needs time in his presence in the Bible and through prayer. But secondly, Revelation 19, white garments, what are they? Verse 8, Revelation 19, verse 8. To her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the what? What is the fine linen? The, you got it. The righteous what? Acts of the saints. In other words, a people that come to Christ whose lives are transformed by his grace, who have a life-changing faith, manifest that faith in action. They manifest that faith in obedience. In other words, your faith is so good it works. It is not faith and works. It is a faith which works. A living, vital faith is manifest in the life. It is not Praise Jesus, I'm saved by grace, so I do whatever I please. It is the grace that pardons me. It's the grace that empowers me. The faith that reaches up for justification is the same faith that reaches out for sanctification. The faith by which I am justified is the same faith by which I am sanctified. By faith I believe in Christ's death on Calvary's cross in the past to atone for my past sins. By faith, I believe that my living Christ in the sanctuary above will impart his Holy Spirit to set me apart and sanctify my life. What does Laodicea need? A vital faith, a faith that is transforming, a faith that reaches out for the justifying grace of Christ, and a faith that reaches out to Jesus in the sanctuary as high priest that produces the righteousness in their lives, the world is looking for a generation of young people who, whose lives demonstrate that they've been transformed by the grace of Christ. No hypocrisy will reach this generation. You can't fool around with this generation. One thing about the youth culture of today, they see through a phony a hundred miles away. They do. You can't pretend if you're dealing with young people today. If you are false and hypocritical, they will see through that if you try to go witness to university students about something intellectual in your head and the living Christ hasn't changed your life and the living Christ has not given you a vital faith and if, you, if they know that you're partying right by the side of them and doing the same things they're doing, they're not going to have much respect for you, right? But if they... But if they what does Laodicea need? What does Laodicea need? First, the gold tried in the fire. That living faith that living experience with Jesus that comes from being, spending time in his presence. What does Laodicea need? 
the sanctifying grace of Christ that produces the righteous works. So notice where we're going here. Faith transforms the heart and gives you a vital experience. The gold dried in the fire. White raiment, the manifestation of that faith in the life is works of obedience. Now look at the next phrase. White garments, at the shame of your nakedness, I'm here in verse 16, 18, verse 18. That the, that, yeah, I knew it was there. That you may be clothed in the shame of your nakedness may not appear. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Think with me now, think with me now. Old Testament sanctuary. Who was anointed in the sanctuary? Who was anointed? The priests were anointed with oil representing the Holy Spirit. You and I are to be anointed by the Holy Spirit with the divine eye salve so that we can see the need of this world. And just as the priests were set apart, just as the priests were set apart to witness for God, according to Peter, you and I are priests of the kingdom, aren't we? Look here, keep your finger there. What time is it? Somebody tell me time. It's not five o'clock. It can't be. I know it can't. What time is it? Five thirty-five? Oh, you want to give the old preacher a heart attack? I go, okay, I'm going good. We're going good. Okay, you're going to Peter. Oh, I knew I had time for Peter. I knew the Lord had gave me that. Man, some person, they said, how'd that preacher die? Well, they told him he was half done with his sermon. In that youth meeting, a guy had a heart attack. All right, first Peter. Where's that Peter in the Bible? I know it's there. Okay, shook me up so bad. Can you find Peter? <laughs> told me I was at 535. I knew I preached long, but I didn't think it was that long. Phew. What text was I looking up anyway? Oh, yeah, that one about priests. Okay, first Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. We're looking there. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Look, look, this is it. Oh, man, I got 25 minutes. I can do a lot in 25 minutes. Okay. No, but I'm going to save some time for questions. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Here we go. But you are a chosen generation, a royal what? A royal what? Come on now. You're not that tired. A royal what? Priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. You are a royal priesthood to do what? That you should proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. So the priest of the Old Testament was anointed set apart for work in the sanctuary. So Laodicea, gold, the faith that is vital that transforms your life, white raiment, acts of obedience in the life through the grace of Christ, the eye salve, you're anointed, your eyes are touched and you're able to see. You see men and women lost, you see purpose in life, you see why God has placed you in this generation. You see, you become a consecrated priest of God. His church, Laodicea, is to rise to its destiny in this generation. It is to be a royal priesthood, anointed with God. Do you remember the parable that Jesus told? There was a man, that, not a parable, it was actually a miracle. There was a man that was blind. And as that man was, was blind, Jesus took him out of the city. And the Bible says he took some spittle and he mixed mud with that spittle and he put his hands on the man's eyes and he said do you see what did the man say you remember I see but I see what men walking around like what like trees and so what does the Bible say Jesus touched him again and he said do you see and he said I see every man clearly 
Laodicea needs the second touch, the second touch. Jesus says, come to me, and I'm going to anoint your eyes. Come to me, and I will help you see lost people. Come to me, and I'll help you see new visions for your life. Come to me, and I'll help you see new purpose, new meaning, new destiny in your life. The Laodicean message is three steps. First, we come, and he transforms our hearts and gives us a new faith, and he gives us a vital new experience with him. As we walk and live for him, he sanctifies us. We live lives of godliness and holiness in this generation. We live lives of victory and overcoming through his grace and by his sanctifying power. And he opens our eyes to see meaning and purpose in life, to serve. That's the message to Laodicea. Now follow me closely. The message to Laodicea is not come out of Laodicea and go start another movement that's going to be more pure than the Adventist church because you know what's going to happen? then somebody's going to split off from your movement because you're not going to be as pure. And somebody's going to split off from that movement because they're not going to be as pure. There's going to be all kinds of factions. God says the church will be in a Laodicean condition, but there'll be those that receive the gold of faith, those whose lives are transformed by his grace. I will anoint them with eye salve, and they'll see the need of the world, and I'll send them out to witness, and there will be a great shaking before the end. And in that shaking, the worldly liberal class will leave the conservative critical class will leave, but I will have a group that arise to their destiny, that they will go out. And he concludes Revelation chapter 3 in his remnant end time message with verse 20 and 21. Behold, I stand at the... No, verse 19. And as many as I love, why does he give this message to Laodicea? Because he wants to spit it out of his mouth? Is that why he gives it to Laodicea? Why does he give it to Laodicea? As many as I do what? love. Jesus loves Laodicea. I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous, he says to Laodicea, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Let me ask you the question. What is the door? I knew you'd give me that typical Adventist answer. I thought you were university students. I thought you thought. What does Jesus want to come into? Laodicea or my heart. If he wants to come into my heart, what then is the door? You got it. He doesn't knock on the window. He doesn't knock on the wall. He knocks on the door. Now, if I come and knock on the door of your house, I'm knocking. Here's the door. You are there. The door is the thing that stands between you and him. And Jesus comes to Laodicea and he says, I'm knocking right on that door. Is it a critical attitude in your mind? I want to come in and give you a vital faith. I want to transform your thinking process. I want you to be a witness to me in this generation. I'm knocking on that door. Is that door some article of diet, that's where I'm going to knock. Is that door lustful thoughts, that's where I'm going to knock. Is that door a proud spirit, that's where I'm going to knock. Is that door music that you haven't given up yet, that's where I'm going to knock. Jesus says, I am coming to knock on anything in your life that you're consciously doing that stands between us. 
because I want to fill your life so great that I have a work for you. I have a destiny for you. I want to come in and dine with you. Let's suppose that I'm going to sell my house and I have a German shepherd that I have taught not to let anybody in the house. This German shepherd is fierce. He only bites one of every two people that comes to visit me. He is fierce. We've only had 57, this is imaginary now. Don't go out and tell people that Pastor Finley has a German shepherd that bites one, bites one or two. This is imaginary. This is an illustration. I learned that I have to do that, particularly on my tapes, because what they do is take one sentence and said, Pastor Finley said this. <laughs> All right, you got this German shepherd. He's fierce, bites only one of every two people. He's just had puppies, and he's got seven more. So now you got eight German shepherds in the house. You don't want to take those eight German shepherds when you move, and you don't want to sell them because you're moving. So the new owner is going to buy the house, and you say, look, I'm selling you this whole house, but this one room has seven German shepherds in it. They only need to be let out once a day, and you don't have to worry not too many people are going to get bit. You think that person's going to buy that house? You say, that's a crazy illustration. Sure, but you do it all the time. Lord, you can have my whole life, but, but not this music collection. Please, Lord, don't take that away from me. Lord, you can have my whole life, but Lord, you know that I like, I like these articles of diet, Lord. You know, I like this article address. You can have all of me, Lord. Take all of me, Lord. But Lord, you know, I got a little critical attitude here, Lord. Just leave that part of me alone. Lord, my heart is a little proud, but leave it. Jesus said, look, I'm knocking on the door of your heart. I'm knocking right on that thing that sometimes stands between us. And I want to do with your life more than you can imagine. I want to do with your life more than you can ever dream. I want to do with your life more than you can ever hope. And if you will let me come in and make a total, complete surrender to me, I'm going to come in and dine with you. Dine is not running by in the hallway saying, Hi, how you doing? Dine is sitting down. Dine in the, in the, in the Bible is the most intimate fellowship possible. Dying is a relationship in which you know one another. You share food together. You share your heart together. You share your joys and sorrows together. And Jesus said, that's what I want to do for you. I want to come in, and I want to dine with you. I want to have the most intimate fellowship with you that you possibly can have. And then Jesus says to Laodicea, verse 21, to him who overcomes. Overcomes what? Overcomes what? Overcomes apathy. Overcomes complacency. Overcomes indifference. Overcomes Laodiceanism. To him who overcomes and lets me come in and dine with them. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus says to you, to me, I have a destiny for you. One day you will sit upon thrones. One day you'll reign with me. One day, a million years from now, a trillion years from now, you'll travel from star to star, from planet to planet. You'll visit unnumbered worlds that have never fallen by sin. You'll see vast technologies that you've never dreamed even existed that make your iPhone look like nothing. You talk about text messaging. We will have 
instant thought messaging. I don't know how it's going to work, but God has things that I would never possibly dream of. I type out the thoughts on the computer of my mind and I send them across the universe. I don't know how that's going to work, but I know this, God's knowledge is far vaster, far greater than anything you can dream of. What do you say? Sure it is. Look, we'll travel from planet to planet. We'll travel from star to star. We'll travel to unnumbered fallen worlds. That's the destiny God has for you. We will tell the story of his grace, the story of his love, the story of his power. We'll be witnesses for him through all eternity. Don't ever sell your soul out cheap. Don't sell your soul out cheap. God has something for you that you cannot dream and you cannot imagine. And Laodicea will rise to the destiny. How do I know that? Because Revelation 18 verse 1 says that the earth will be lightened with the glory of God. There will be a generation of Adventists who kneel before him, who allow the Spirit to break down every barrier in their hearts, who dine with him and fellowship with him, who walk with him like Enoch, who are obedient to him like Elijah, who purpose in their heart to serve him like Daniel, who cry out like Joseph, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Who, like Moses, are faithful to him. God will have a generation that will rise to the challenge receive the gold of faith that he offers, whose lives will reflect the obedience of his love and grace, and whose eyes will be anointed to go out with purpose to witness to the world. If I know my heart at all, I want to be part of that generation. What about you? Is that your desire? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We've studied the remnant, and we thank thee that in Revelation 14, the remnant has an end-time message for this generation, a message that's relevant. We thank Thee that the remnant will keep Your commandments, be guided by the gift of prophecy. We thank Thee that the remnant in Revelation 3 will one day have that vital spiritual experience with lives transformed and live for You forever and ever. Lord, break down every door in our heart and every barrier in our heart and help us serve you today, tomorrow, and forever. In Christ's name, amen. This message was recorded through a partnership between GYC and GYC Europe at the 2012 conference in Linz, Austria. GYC are supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church seeks to inspire young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.